Hi everybody, I'm John Offord. I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. Today we're going to talk about ADHD, which is quite appropriate given it's Men's Health Week this week, of course. I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests online, mother and son, Ruth and Peter Williams. Ruth Williams is a specialist psychotherapist working with neurodiverse clients, including people with ADHD. Ruth's son, Peter, also joins us too. Peter is a 23-year-old and lives with ADHD. Peter is a trainee production assistant at the National Film and Television School. Hi there, how are you both doing? Fine, thanks, John. It's lovely to hear your voice finally. Great, great. Good to, good to speak to you both. So, Ruth, what is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, obviously otherwise known as ADHD? It's a neurodevelopmental disorder, John, and this means it's, it's basically a disorder of brain development that affects behaviour, and its primary symptoms are inattention, hyperactivity and impulsivity. And people that are diagnosed with these symptoms, usually they come to the point of getting an assessment because their life's been considerably impacted. And it means that they have difficulty in social, academic and occupational life. And therefore, having an understanding of it is essential, really, if you're going to progress in life. So I understand there are three subtypes of ADHD, inattentive, hyperactive or both. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Ruth? Inattentive type was previously known as attention deficit disorder. It now comes under the umbrella of ADHD, but is a subtype. And you can imagine, you know, it's, it's a, in the title, it's people that have difficulty concentrating and focusing, and they often can appear at times to be daydreaming or, or in a bit of a world of their own. So these people are less likely to be disruptive, but they can come across as a bit zoned out at times, not always. Sometimes when your younger school reports might suggest that, that you're a capable person, but you don't apply yourself. And of course, you can imagine that becomes a little bit difficult because people then begin to think it's their fault and that they're lazy or you know dreamy or something like that and negative connotations can come about from very early on. The hyperactive type is when you imagine people with an abundance of energy which is quite I suppose quite obvious in a visual way that from a young age you might have difficulty sitting still for any period of time. There might be movement, fidgeting, also impulsive speaking out not always waiting your turn. I suppose distracting others is is something that we're quite aware of with the hyperactive type. And quite a, a kind of the, the constant questioning, why are we doing it this way, you know, which can look like you're being a little bit militant, but it's often just because a person's curious and wanting to know the logic of doing something a way that they don't see potentially the logic in. So I think sometimes the impulsivity can be saying things without fully thinking, things almost sort of blurt out very quickly without a lot of processing, and it's very reactive. And of course, that can cause problems because it doesn't always fit in with social rules. So those are the two, the two sort of types. And then, of course, there's the combined type, which is the, three, the third type. So the combined type is is a mixture of the two things. So what criteria must be met then for an ADHD diagnosis? Right. I think, are we concentrating more on adults, John, for this podcast? Yeah. For adults, it's important from the sort of recognised symptoms of ADHD that an adult must meet at least five of these symptoms. 
but in, and that's to get a, a diagnosis based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I'll give you a range of those. I won't take you through the whole lot. But for instance, yeah. the inattentive type criteria um, predominantly can be poor listening skills, can lose and misplace things very easily, can easily get sidetracked and go off on a tangent. And that isn't always to do with necessarily things that are a stimuli in front of them it can be just their mind taking them to other places forgetfulness you know what we think of as absent-mindedness sometimes a, a difficulty following through on verbal instructions or even long-winded written instructions and difficulty starting tasks and, and completing tasks so those are very much part of the inattentive type in making careless errors you know losing concentration the hyperactive type you know of criteria is things like a restlessness difficulty to control this of I don't know the kind of fidgeting with hands and feet maybe movement in a chair sometimes you hear the phrase appears to be driven by a motor very much on the go and and that's something I think people conjure up in their minds when they think of hyperactivity and also sometimes for younger children that when they're playing they engage in leisure activities in quite a noisy way in that they, there's often a constant dialogue or sound effects and children with a hyperactive type rarely play very quietly. There can be excessive talking, difficulty remaining seated both for young children and sometimes older people find it hard to sit for any length of time. Um, they might pace around a lot when they're trying to concentrate. I think difficulty waiting their turn, you know, you imagine adults as well waiting in long queues, traffic jams can be unbearable, you know, it, impulsivity in, in dialogue, you know, often blurting out answers before it's appropriate. And sometimes when blurting out inappropriate information that might shock other people, there might be a lack of filter. Those are the kind of criteria, you know, you need to have at least five of those. For younger children, they need to have at least six. And for anybody that's looking to have an ADHD assessment, it's important that symptoms have been present prior to 12 years of age. So you, you mentioned there, Ruth, you made a reference to the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So I think that's yeah. also referred to as DSM-5. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, about that? What What is that, if, if anyone's never heard of DSM-5? It's a handbook that's that's used by healthcare professionals and it's it's an American publication but to be honest it's used across the whole world and it, it contains descriptions and symptoms um, and criteria for a whole range of mental health conditions and I suppose the thing that's really helpful is it, it forms a common language that can be used for clinicians and other professionals and people to communicate and understand various diagnoses for a whole range of these conditions. It doesn't actually include guidelines for treatment, which is interesting, but it's very much a manual for assessment and understanding, which can then signpost people to find appropriate treatments. So you talked about the criteria for ADHD diagnosis, but what, what I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what the, uh, the symptoms of ADHD are. Yeah, I mean, the symptoms, John, um, some of the things that we've talked about in, you know, when we looked down that list of criteria, those are very much the sort of symptoms so when we talk about things like blurting things out and interrupting and then that impulsivity that is a very key symptom of the hyperactive type also 
one of the other things in, in terms of the classification, we look at things like emotional dysregulation, you know, when people's emotions can switch from one state to another very quickly. And sometimes people don't fully appreciate why that has happened. And of course, in my job and also my role in, in as a parent, I begin to unpick and realise it's usually a build-up of a whole host of things. But it's that, you know, people feeling at times very conflicted because all the things I discussed before, you know, forgetfulness, difficulty, you know, one of the things that I'll talk about today is difficulty with executive functioning. So holding things in your mental workspace and organising yourself, all of those things are symptoms. So right from an early age, you know, even quite young children develop good organisational skills. And to develop those skills, you need to have a fairly competent working memory where you can hold sort of, if you think of when we do the most basic things like our morning routine when we get up, those are all things that we learn and become, I think we would say, the autopilot things. We get up, we might go into the bathroom and brush our teeth and do a few things. And then that whole routine becomes just a routine that we remember because it's part of our executive functioning. But for people with ADHD, both inattentive and hyperactive, the, some of the symptoms are even something they've done for years. They could forget key components because they're distracted by something either something in their head that they're thinking about or a noise outside. So all these different symptoms that you put together form part of the, the pattern, which I guess we'll be talking about all of those things today. So, Peter, when were you diagnosed with ADHD? I was diagnosed with ADHD at age six. There were quite a few factors in that. One is that I wasn't really gelling well with a private education. I was privately educated for, was it three years? Yes. For the first three years of my education and because that system is quite rigid and strict yeah. and enforces one way of learning. That, that's not to say that there weren't good teachers. My teacher for the first year reception was very good and very understanding, but there were others that were just uh, found me a bit challenging. My mum often recounts that I used to be sat at the front of assembly and because with ADHD you have such an inquisitive nature I'd just start talking to the teachers because proprioceptively I didn't realize that there were people behind me I just thought they sat me down in front of a teacher so we could do more learning I couldn't see the difference between assembly and like a normal lesson so mm -hmm. I and labelled quite disruptive in assemblies and at playtime I used to get up to a few antics as well one of the favourite stories my mum always tells me is I used to on really hot days I used to fill my shoes or pumps up with water and just lob them at people yeah which is it's pretty pretty hyperactive and I used to have quite meltdowns as well if like family holidays or traveling i think was really stressful for me thank you so peter when, when were you diagnosed with asperger's um i was diagnosed at asperger's at age nine and similar to that i remember exactly where i was when i was diagnosed with asperger's because we'd been trying to get the diagnosis obviously for a couple of years probably since we've had the adhd diagnosis and um i was just in the school playground one day and mum just came up to me and said, the diagnosis has come through. And it just it just kind of all clicked. And I'll always remember that because it was just kind of like changed how I view myself and kind of like gave an explanation as to how 
and why I view the world differently. Yeah, so Peter, what was it like growing up? You, you've already touched on it with, with ADHD and Asperger's, so I wonder if you could tell us what some of the some of the challenges were. The main challenges are just generally not fitting in, just seeming like a bit of an outlier, um, like not being able to sit still is a big thing in a society where you have to sit still often in an office or a school environment for seven or eight hours a day. Luckily, there are jobs and pathways that will always enable you to be yourself. But for that very rigid first few years of early education, where it is sat down learning for seven hours a day, it was extremely challenging. This is why I was on Ritalin from age... Seven or eight, yeah. Yeah, I was on Ritalin from age seven till age 14, which is a sedative drug. I think the reason Peter said sedative is he feels it calmed him down, which it did, but it's actually a stimulant. So it, right. the reason it sounds a bit contradictory. Why would you stimulate somebody with hyperactivity? You're not actually stimulating the hyperactivity. You're stimulating the production of dopamine, which is the chemical that fuels the frontal lobes that governs behavioral regulation and executive functioning. So you're actually helping somebody to focus and align their brain in a way that helps them to focus. So basically, I'll hand back to Peter, but one of the reasons that we were encouraged to let Peter try this at quite a young age, because as you can imagine, as parents, it, your child going on to medication is a huge, huge decision and not something that you take lightly. And family, we're not, we don't, none of us are really on medication. So it, it was a big decision, but because Peter had a lot of ability, but we were told because he was so extremely hyperactive, it was very unlikely he'd reach his potential and be able to concentrate. We made that decision after a lot of soul searching and a lot of discussion with professionals. And actually, it made a big difference to his focus and concentration. But as Peter will go on to explain, you know, he made a decision later in his teens to come off it because there was various things that weren't agreeing with him, um, which some people find whereas other people are on it for a long time and it, it helps them a great deal. Yeah, um, the reason I chose to go off it is, although it was a very helpful drug and in my younger and more, say, troubled days, I could they could literally tell when I tried to stick it or not. It's never something I particularly liked doing, just because I've been around people with substance issues before, and I think in my young mind I didn't want to be on the same drug every single day, so I was just worried I turn out like the person I know with substance issues but unfortunately it affects the part of your brain which regulates sleep a lot as well because the levels of is it serotonin are fluctuating throughout the day it makes it very hard to get back into a natural rhythm in time to sleep so there'd be literally days before say important exams or important pieces of coursework I had to hand in or even just going to school on two or three hours sleep a night through no fault of your own. Anyone with insomnia knows how hard that is. But in this case, I had the ability to control the insomnia. So it was kind of a catch-22. Do I control the insomnia or do I let the ADHD run rampant? Peter, you mentioned before about you know, struggling to focus in uh, school assemblies and things. So would you say that it was tricky for you then to focus at school? Yeah, it was extremely difficult, particularly on subjects that I didn't find too engaging, because the executive functioning part of the brain that deals with ADHD doesn't really like balancing 19 different 
subjects at once. Well, it felt like 19. It was probably only about 12. I did manage to get 12 GCSEs, but it was a lot of work getting there, particularly with languages, because the way they taught languages at my school was, although it was a language college, I just found it quite dry. It was very textbook and the style of learning I always vibe with most is a very interactive style of learning. It does rely a lot heavily around questions and interactivity yeah. and just passionate teachers as well. And just one of my university tutors says that always remains with me as someone, something, someone who is involved in education to strive towards, which is be interesting and be interested information interesting in an interesting manner but also make sure you're passionate about the subject you're teaching absolutely that's fantastic advice thank you so just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about you know what it's like for you as a mother living with a son with adhd it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride in many ways you know bits that have been fantastic and bits that have been very challenging particularly difficult in in those early years because as any parent does you're kind of struggling to ensure your child's happy but at the same time educationally in our society there's a lot of pressure for people to um, meet the criteria that you know within schools for success and I think because Peter was a very able child and a very bright curious child we knew he had a lot of ability from his early stages um, but we also were very aware that there was that disruptive element that he was very much on the move, that he found it hard to concentrate. If you could get Peter interested, he could hyper-focus and concentrate very well. But as he just said, it, it's an, an important thing that somebody is able to engage him because if they don't, he will zone out or go on to something else very quickly. So as a parent, you know, when you imagine as a young child, Peter, if he went to somebody's house, he'd be incredibly curious. So you know, most children verbally will follow instructions of sit at the table, finish your meal. He would finish his meal as fast as possible because he'd want to explore. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I remember steak was literally like the worst thing ever as a child with ADHD. I still don't like it. It's just so mm. chewy and it just takes ages. And it's not even that tasty compared to, in, <laughs> in my objective opinion, compared to things like tomatoes and pasta and mm. other things. I found the whole process of it monotonous although there was conversation at the dinner table it just wasn't as interesting as all the books and comics and video games that's a really interesting thing that peter's just said john because mm. you know how interjected with that and clearly saying it was time consuming eating steak and that slowed mm. him down couldn't be doing the exciting things like exploring someone's bookcase or what good toys yeah. they had yeah. and interesting I, I didn't realize but when he was younger I was thinking a lot of the foods that he liked were based on textures because he liked smooth things like sausages and pasta. things pasta and of course I never stopped to factor in it was because he could eat quickly and get down because for mm. Peter the table was the most boring place because yeah. it was just there for a function it wasn't there to socialize as far as he was concerned it was just stopping him having more input and more enjoyment in whatever he was doing. There's been lots of highs. Peter's always been incredibly entertaining. He's got a very fast brain. So he's, as an adult, he's very good at improvised comedy and is, is in an improvisation comedy group. Could land you in very sticky situations because sometimes his impulsivity and his quick mind would mean that he would say things that 
in, a, in appropriate places, which again, as a parent, can be quite tricky. You can imagine, John, having to juggle Peter's needs with an older and younger sibling who sometimes didn't want the limelight and the attention drawn to our um, kind of different type of family. And, and I guess trying to kind of balance everything in a family, you know, it can be quite exhausting having a child that doesn't sleep well and that is always on the go. And things like danger, you know, again, from a young age and through adolescence, impulsivity can lead to fast decisions like rushing across a road or doing something that is actually quite a dangerous pursuit. So, as I say, as a parent, you have to be hyper vigilant. You also have to choose your battles carefully because, you know, other parents are quite quick to judge the parents of ADHD children because I think they assume that you're not strict enough and you should be maintaining order. But of course, if you picked your battles every single incident, you'd be just on, on edge and all shouting at one another. So it's about getting a regular sort of pattern. So your boundaries that, you know, that your children as they grow up are aware are kind of things that have to be followed. But then you have to also, I suppose, put your own child's needs high up the priority list because I had to think of Peter and his siblings and there's often guilt because it's very hard to balance all of that. And you do feel at times the other siblings sometimes can get a raw deal because they're being brought into situations constantly through no choice of their own. But I think what I would say is even though it's been a roller coaster ride, I've learned a great deal from Peter. You know, he's a very engaging person and he's always got a lot to add to conversations. And he's actually, you know, a very honest and caring person. So I think as a parent, you know, like many parents say, you wouldn't change them. I think sometimes I'm saddened at some of the struggles Peter has to do some things that many of us take for granted, particularly the executive functioning um, and the organisation, because it, that sometimes limits him realising his potential. But as a parent, yes, I, I think one thing that I do in my job every day is work with parents as well as individuals that have ADHD and use some of the experiences I've had to help, you know, just support other people that are going through this. Because when, when Peter was younger, we had very few places to turn. And as much as we had some very kind and caring friends and family, there were very few services where we could get any support for this. Luckily, the godsend we had is that the high school I was at did have quite a good support network. I wasn't really an SEN student, but I did need training assistance for quite a while to just to make sure I was on track. So it was that disruptive that without a kind of leash of a training assistant I just threatened to kind of like either get myself into trouble or just disrupt the whole class but I, I don't know I did find that restrictive and that did have a later impact on my mental health and it did leave an open window for bullying because I think with that kind of system it is very helpful but sometimes it can be helpful in some lessons but not others like I never think and even my teaching assistants even agreed with me on this that I didn't really need one for history because with history I'd always be engaged because there was so much to learn and there were so many facts to answer and questions and it was just a very engaging subject I found whereas for maths I'd be very off track because it was quite rigid so I would kind of need that extra hand. 
Peter, you talked about the challenges that you faced as a child with ADHD, but I wonder if you could just talk to us a bit about how ADHD affects you as an adult. It affects me as an adult in quite a few different ways, primarily of which I've found in the last few years um, with the rise of phones and social media and the dopamine rushes that go for all that is I have to be very, very careful the amount of time I'm spending on my phones. It can just turn into like a black hole time sink where I'm just on it trying to Google things and look up facts because I love facts. Facts are interesting. Going off it now, probably because I've spent too much time on it on lockdown, but just those little bite-sized things of dopamine, like it's everything. It affects yeah. the workplace as well. Being able to do a long task for monotonous periods of time, I always find I need music just to keep the other part of my brain that's always seeking information actively. So it's taking in audible information where while I can either use my hands in a practical task or or just get on with some paperwork or coursework. How would you say, Peter, ADHD affects your mental health? It's hard to pinpoint how ADHD affects my mental health because there's three main factors to touch on when we're talking about my mental health. Um, obviously, there's the autism spectrum diagnosis, with not, which not everyone with ADHD has, but there are quite a lot of people with it as a comorbid condition. Obviously, there's the ADHD itself. And then there's the fact that around about 14, 15 years old, I started to realise that I had a different sexuality to most people. At first, this did affect the ADHD because it was like I couldn't really shout it from the tea chops because I didn't want to get socially ostracised. So I had to put even more effort into filtering myself and my own thoughts in the world out to kind of correspond them to normal. I suppose as all 14-year-olds do in a way, that was a lot on top of each other and it did start to show the cracks about 16. I just felt like I couldn't keep the mask up anymore because I've been such an outlier and I just had such kind of almost a bad reputation at high school as being the disruptive one but I enjoyed the high school so much I didn't want to move. So growing up into a young adult I think I just kind of fell out of education just because I was trying to balance too many things at once. After high school, I did a BTEC in film and TV. And the thing with my ADHD is I find the first year of establishment, any establishment, whether that be the workplace or just the first few months, just find it really hard to integrate and get myself into a routine. The motivation to kind of like do my tasks and just the constant procrastination and sleep pro the sleep problems of adjusting to a new um, daytime cycle to fit in with a new job or lesson plan. But when I did come out to my parents and when I did reconcile my sexuality, I think that really helped in my mental health. And I did show quite an improvement on that because I wasn't having to balance mm. um, and things at once. And after that, I kind of made the decision to drop out of university for a bit. I was doing a media technology degree at the time. So I thought, you know what would be fun? Because I'd never been to a music festival before, but they'd always fascinated me because it was like, I could see, because I've always been into my music, cause so yeah. I could see like 30 or 50 different acts a day and all I had to do was a few hours of work. Or so yeah. I thought, what actually happened is it was 12 hours of either car park duty or wristbanding or the interesting one, which was shadowing a security industry accredited officer. 
um, and we I, I, I did find elements of that job engaging um, but it was I did find it extremely hard to focus at times. So Peter what festival what music festival was it that you went to? I went to in one summer I managed to go to Download I managed to go to Latitude and I managed to go to Ke- Camp festival and probably what will be the last ever festival. Well, I, I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty much I've only ever been to one music festival. I've been to Leeds Music Festival a few years ago, which was amazing. But um, I'm slightly jealous, Peter, of all the music festivals you've been to. Yeah, I was supposed to do that one, but I chose to go with my partner on a trip to Budapest, which they'd already booked instead. Nice, nice. But well, that's not bad, is it? Budapest is pretty pretty amazing. So uh, lucky yeah, you. But it was. Planning holidays is a big thing for, I suppose, adult mental health as well. Because we all have this ideal of like the perfect holiday and looking at the itineraries and just this. That is where I just do need some help. So if I'm just left to plan a holiday, it can just overwhelm me because I'll be looking at so many different things and I'll just find it very hard to organise and list them. Mm. Um, if I had someone to help me, say like lay down a template and say I think I'd do it this way if you want to kind of interpret that to your own personal beat of how you do things. Yeah really interesting you've touched on this already but I wonder if you could just give us another example of how you struggle to concentrate uh, perhaps in a a particular situation. Sometimes fidget toys can help with that. Um, Do you feel like you've you have too much energy more than other people? Yeah I feel like exercise can help with that but it's also very hard to organize me exercising it's almost like being tigger off winnie the pooh at times the reason i identify with doctor who as a franchise more than ever i think the 11th doctor matt smith kind of like mirrors my personality it's to the extent where matt smith posted an in-character personality test as what he thought the 11th doctor was and i got the exact same result as him um, so it's just kind of like having too much to say at once like it all kind of just wants to burst out and fall yeah. out of your head it can just be if you're talking to a person with ADHD in casual conversation they can be quite excitable and jumpable and just kind of like splurge like everything at once out to you instead of structuring it at the course of like a 15 minute conversation and sorry to interrupt, yeah. Peter, but I've also heard that people with ADHD fidget and move around a lot. Is is that the case for you? Yeah, we have a basket of fidget toys at home that helps me get on with my coursework. Usually I choose more jobs and roles that do allow me to fidget more. For example, I chose the catering course because I thought I'd always be like hands-on with food and hands-on with dishes and just be, be having something to do and constantly be learning and constantly being active instead of just sat around. I don't think office work suits people with ADHD very much because it, it, it's very rigid and stuck in one place for a long period of time. But if you go on the internet and look at fidget toys, I often find I like the more doughy, malleable ones that you can really kind of like bend and push. But there are ones that are more kind of like rigid like I've got one I'm just squeezing in my hand now um, but I do have to be careful with them because I'm so impulsive and reckless sometimes if my mind just goes off things I can end up breaking them just through force. And on that Peter do you find it difficult to control your behaviour then in some situations? Yeah I think the most challenging situations to control my behaviour is when people accuse me of something that I haven't done like just trying to play games with me and trying to wind me up um 
things go very quickly, zero to a hundred in my emotional response in those places. Like I'll always remember when I was at my catering firm, they did, they accused me of, they accused me of wanting staff drinks that I wasn't allowed all the time. And they said I was like begging for them all the time. And like literally all that had happened is like a grand total of twice in a month, I'd asked for a San Pellegrino. Um, while they were carrying out a massive case of about 40 San Pellegrinos. So I already had a very good relationship with that waiter. And I think that just got very heated because people with ADHD, they tend to be quite loyal because if we can let our filter down, if we can feel truly comfortable around someone, that is a gift and we don't have to fit in. Going, that going from zero to 100 can be quite stressful and um raw but there is a come down after that kind of like meltdown effect happens which is just like i think a good way to describe it is everything just becomes very quiet it's almost like i don't have adhd for two hours and i think it's just that huge after what we call a meltdown which is just kind of like an explosive argument it's almost like the explosive decompression of a spaceship when you put it under too much pressure yeah. I like that visual um, uh, example that you've just given there. Really interesting. I'm going to move us on a bit. So, Ruth, I wonder if you could just talk about, um, I've heard the term emotional dysregulation before when it comes to ADHD. I wonder if you could tell us what is meant by that term. I mean, Peter's just described sometimes quite um, excessive emotional reactions to things where moods can change quite noticeably and quite quickly. So I suppose the term mood mood lability you know that and also that reduced behavioral inhibition when emotionally aroused so when peter gets really worked up he, his filter just goes completely out the window um and the example he was just giving it, it probably listeners can hear that peter will have something in his mind and he'll get sort of fixed on that and sometimes it will just slightly deviate from the question and that happens a lot with people with adhd and then sometimes it feels like oh, they've missed the point of the question or they've deviated and I'm not quite sure what they're getting at. And this emotional dysregulation is fueled often by that, you know, that misinterpretation or misconnection. So somebody could be challenging and say something that appears a bit insulting to somebody that's either gone off on a tangent or requested something they're not supposed to have. And it can the mood can be so elevated that it seems out of proportion to what's happened and the example peter's just given is very connected to this dislike of injustice because i suppose people that i come across in day-to-day work they often have a very strong ethical awareness and they, they will stand up for others and advocate for others if they feel they've been treated unfairly And in that example Peter gave, you know, in his job, he was allowed to have a soft drink every single day. But apparently he discovered that the soft drink didn't include the one he'd just mentioned because that was slightly more expensive. And the employers reacted in a very, again, a very over the top way about it. Aggressive. And when somebody Over feels like forty p, it's like it's like that bit in Friday Night Dinner where it's like fifty p, fifty bloody p. <laughs> really hammering. I love Friday Night Dinner Peter. That's a brilliant TV program. Yeah. <laughs> fifty bloody p. <laughs> I, I suppose I'm digressing here, but the emotional dysregulation in that situation was profound because Peter was so insulted 
at the way he was treated over 40p when he was allowed 50 a, a 50p sorry Peter he was allowed a cheap drink but not a San Pellegrino and he'd been doing a 12-hour shift in a hot kitchen so I suppose what we're not, saying what we're saying here is that for people with ADHD at times they they don't have the self-restraint that other people may have particularly the more hyperactive and people that struggle with emotional dysregulation you may get people with ADHD that are more inattentive that and, and even some people are hyperactive that don't have that degree of emotional dysregulation that I think Peter and some others struggle with from an early age right through to you know through into adulthood. So Peter I'll ask you the question then is, is emotional dysregulation a, a component of ADHD? Yes I'd say it definitely is um, I've seen a lot of my friends who also have ADHD because I'm lucky that I do have friends who I can confide in with this because it is such a common condition these days. I think all of us, I think when we're both emotionally dysregulating at the same time, that's when it does get really hard. And it often, often if another friend is with us, just take them to step in and say, look, you're both getting way too over in your heads about this like silly, trivial thing, whether it like be that one of my friends is like going out for a smoke break way too much and it's just in hampering what we're trying to do like in improv or something but it just it's just that trying to keep a calm and level-headed in difficult situations is sometimes a bit harder for us yeah. than most and i think as well being wound up like people with adhd are very easy to wind up because we are kind of like dogs in a way that we just want a bit of affection and just to be a bit silly i think to be to be able to be silly is a gift and i think sometimes the world is far too serious about what it has to be and i think when you mix those people who are kind of like super serious in the adhd kind of like silly off the wall let's try everything at once mix. absolutely completely agree with that yeah i think we um it's good to be silly sometimes, isn't it? So I completely relate to that. Uh, Ruth, you, um, you you talked about executive function earlier. I just wonder if you could tell us what, what is that? What is executive function? Executive functioning is, is something that is very important in life because it, it, it basically is, helps us to pay attention to the things that we need to accomplish tasks like keeping focus, organisation, planning skills, and prioritization and also our ability to get on with something to start it and to complete it and in order to have good executive functioning usually working memory is a big component because that's what we call our mental workspace where the information is stored for a short time and and if we can hold quite a lot in our working memory you know we talked about earlier about sequential tasks that are daily like getting ready in the morning and basic routines but for people with poor working memory even things have done all their lives they can forget stages of of that sequence and people might suffer from something which we call time blindness which is not having that innate concept of time so from a young age peter used to get lost in time getting ready you know, he needed lots of prompts and, and, to be honest, still often does. Showering? I still don't know what a quick shower is and I'll probably yeah. have to figure it out. Well, it's before this podcast, John. Peter said, yeah. I'll just have a quick shower. And yeah. he arrived down here off, you know, a few minutes before the podcast. But, you know, that's the story of our lives. It's, it's getting yeah. everywhere on the seat of pants. 
in a rush. Buses are the worst. It's like, oh, there's nothing worse than a bus that's early. It's just like, <laughs> I often have to plan to put three buses ahead because my brain just takes so much leniency. Particularly in Leeds, where the bus is often late, I think my brain just takes leniency with the fact that, oh, the bus is going to be late, of course it's going to be late. If I sprint down the garden at this speed, and if yeah. I chuck everything in my bag at this speed, rather than getting there 10 minutes early, I should just about be fine. Yeah. So that's a good example, um, Peter, yeah. of what I was thinking of. So Peter's idea is the bus comes at five past nine, so yeah. I need to be at the bus stop at four and a half minutes past nine or maybe even five past. <laughs> so, you know, throughout his schooling, you would see him tearing down the garden and, you know, and at times, of course, quite alarming things that are not particularly funny. You know, people would comment that they'd seen Peter literally running across the road ahead of the bus, yeah. which you know, all of these things are this difficulty estimating the, the gap of time you need to even get to the bus stop. Yeah. So going back to the executive functioning, when a task requires sustained effort, working memory helps us to control our attention and also resist distraction. Interestingly, working memory can really deteriorate when we're stressed and anxious. So I think we can all relate to this in a way that when we've got a lot on our plates and we're having a very difficult, anxious period, we might be a lot more absent minded and a lot more forgetful. But that's what it's like for a lot of people with executive functioning problems. You know, they're easily distracted. They mm. find it incredibly hard to start tasks and to complete tasks. And one of the most difficult things that I find quite upsetting is the times that I've worked with people of all ages that say from an early age, they would be quite often told you're very capable, but you don't carry on with things. You don't persevere. You're lazy. And they're often quite damning and shaming names are used. And of course, young people grow to adults feeling very super sensitive to those shaming names and often can develop low self-esteem. And that perky, bubbly ADHD character that you see on the outside might be almost like the weeping clown inside because they don't feel as good as you think. And a lot of it is because the kind of self-monitoring keeping an eye on what we're doing and regulating our emotion. All of that is to do with the frontal lobes of the brain that, you know, are also responsible for executive functioning. So you can imagine if somebody's challenged with this because of a neurological difference and because we understand that people with ADHD have reduced dopamine, which is, uh, you know, you're probably aware, John, it's an, a neurotransmitter, which mm. is a is basically a chemical responsible for transmitting signals between the nerve cells and the neurons of the brain. And that's, you know, that's why a lot of people, you know, really do genuinely struggle with all the things we've talked about today. And, and you can imagine why parents and people themselves that have ADHD get very disheartened when we just are constantly bombarded, even still in the media with People saying, I don't believe ADHD exists. It's just an excuse for disruptive, well, um, badly behaved people. Mm. But actually, you know, there's a lot of scientific evidence that it exists and a lot of neurological um, research in recent years that points to brain based differences. And the fact that, you know, medication actually can be incredibly helpful 
And the reason I want to just comment on that is I work... In some at, cases, not all yeah, cases. Yeah, in some cases, Pete, you're right. And I think the reason for anybody listening to this to open their mind to the possibility of medication is actually that the clinical lead for um, ADHD in, in Leeds, a, a very lovely person who's a knowledgeable psychiatrist, he informed me that ADHD is actually one of the most treatable psychiatric conditions and there are now, a, a, you know, there's a, a quite a few choices in medication. It's not just Ritalin. There are also non-stimulant medications. And it's well worth people trying them because with careful titration, uh, i.e. the build-up of a medication very steadily, an adjustment to suit each individual person. Kind of like how you put co how you lessen the amount of coffee you put in your drink over a day. Yeah, so, so basically titration, as many people will understand, is a very careful build-up of a medication to suit in each individual person. And if, if there are problems with a medication and side effects, it can be either altered or changed to a different type. But the reason I think it's very important to mention that is there are all sorts of choices you can make. And when Peter was a young child and he, we did decide to try this medication, we also made the decision not to have him take it at weekends or any of his holidays because we didn't want him to be on it when he didn't need to be. It was purely to allow him to focus at school and reach his potential. I guess the key thing that I'm saying here is, you know, that there are a lot of people out there that can say things based on a lack of knowledge and it can make people choose not to even look into these options but I think it's worth always exploring all options in terms of support. And so, and so just to summarise then, Ruth, so, I mean, I know you obviously just touched on that and talked about medication, but how, if you were to summarise, if it's possible, in a few sentences, how do you treat ADHD then? What, what would you say is the, the way to yeah. treat ADHD? I think in terms of treatment for ADHD, certainly because I work with a lot of quite exceptional people that have ADHD, it's, it's a combined approach. You know, medication alone will not be sufficient. You need to have somebody that can help you build strategies. Peter mentioned regular exercise. That's been very much the evidence shows regular exercise really helps people focus and concentrate because there's often that excess of energy and it creates an alignment and an ability to concentrate. So I, I certainly work on strategies, you know, a lot of visual strategies you know, putting things in somebody's environment as, as prompts and cues that adults and children can rely upon to give them prompts. I think another thing is people that succeed with ADHD do often have what I call regulating others in their lives. So it could be a partner, a friend, a parent, somebody who doesn't judge you but gives you prompts and in a, in a caring way, not in a condescending way. And I think part of it is psychoeducation as well. You know, in the work I do, I encourage people to look at different options and to understand their condition better. And I provide a lot of training for families and individuals who are exploring the prospect of ADHD, both pre and post diagnosis. Because it's like anything, if we understand ourselves and see the reasons for things, it helps us develop the appropriate strategies. Yeah, absolutely. And and Peter, if I can just come back to you a second, I just wanted to go back to talking about executive functioning. And I wonder if you right. could tell me which ways are people with ADHD affected by executive functioning issues? Particularly homework, I think. 
or any kind of just like non-work-based environment home learning it can be quite tempting to go off and do netflix or do playstation for a few hours um when in actuality you need to get your head down and focus as i said before music does help with that there's quite a few helpful apps my friends are using um one of them is called forest where you can't touch your phone or go on any other app except forest for half an hour otherwise you kill this virtual forest you made um which kind of like helps it plays the video gamey aspect things like washing and keeping my room tidy that's going to be the main battle for anyone with adhd because there's just so many spilling pates to balance in a normal everyday life and there's so much temptation and impulsivity associated with adhd it can kind of be trying to you know dance between 19 different things at once it seems like just to be able to get through the day Um, and it can just seem a bit overwhelming at time to time some things people regard chores i find very soothing like cooking and dishwashing i've always had a lot of time for because they're very hands-on they're something i think what i like about those tasks is they're something when you start them it's very hard to procrastinate from them other everything otherwise everything will just go wrong very quickly like if you're cooking something very easily burn it or if you're like dishwashing you'll just get everything soaking wet if anyone's listening to this and they 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 perhaps think they might have adhd where do you go to get help and support it's it's very important you know to find somebody you know within your area that has a knowledge of helping you find the right person to have an assessment you know obviously with google you can google people in your area that carry out assessments but the first port of call for many people is to talk to maybe somebody like myself who can maybe do a pre-diagnostic assessment and talk through things together. And, you know, I, I find that it helps make people aware of the benefits of getting an assessment because some people are not sure if they want one. I think, you know, it's really important to think of some positive role models that help us that are talking more about ADHD out in media because it helps us see that people can still be incredibly successful and some people have got you know amazing talents but they also need some understanding um, in order to be able to understand where to go next are, are there any well-known people with adhd yeah there are quite a few people so example one person that often busts the myth that AD, people with adhd can't be productive and can't really do anything with their lives is the olympian michael phelps um he's a swimmer who obviously has 28 medals um 23 of them gold medals it's a tally that won't be equal for quite a while and the reason he actually started swimming in the first place was because of adhd because he found balancing so many things at school was so difficult and disruptive to his everyday life and routine he just wanted to channel his energies into one specific thing and he found it was to okay to seek help and talk to someone about his ADHD while at the same time channeling all of his fidgeting and impulsivity into absolutely blasting through at the swimming pool and becoming the most decorated sportsman of all time. And I think a good example of non-hyperactive ADHD which she'd never, she'd never come across as in interviews, and most people would be surprised, is that Emma Watson actually was diagnosed as a child 
and mm-hmm. was actively on ADHD medication throughout the filming of most of the Harry Potter films. Peter, I wonder if you could just tell me, like, what are the things you value most about your mum? I appreciate my mum for everything she does to help me with my executive functioning, whether that's just gentle prompts every now again, now and again with my daily tasks and daily routines, or just making sure I'm eating and drinking is the main thing, just that self-regulation and just always being a shoulder there to talk about my differences and talk about and be honest as well. She's very honest if I apply for say a job or a role that she thinks is going to be difficult which is why I didn't really tell her about the security stuff till the last minute but she'll always give an honest and frank opinion about what she's seen in her professional life and what she thinks about how I would do in that particular role whether that's positive or negative and I just really value that honesty um, from someone I can trust absolutely. And Ruth, what do you value the most about your son, Peter? I think the thing with Peter is very, he's a very upfront, honest sort of person and he's incredibly caring to his family. You know, he really puts himself out for people and, you know, shows a lot of empathy. Also, I think one of the big things that I value about Peter, it's really helped me as a person to be very open-minded and more accepting of difference you know I'm not a person that rushes to judge people and I think that is because I've had years and years of having to understand difference and you know from a practical point of view it's probably led me into a career that I've found much more rewarding and enjoyable than anything I've ever done before Um, you know as I said when we were recording a previous podcast I started training to be a counsellor at university in my 40s and that was because of partly the inspiration Peter gave me to, to do it and partly because I recognised there needed to be more support for people with ADHD and their families. And, you know, I absolutely love my work with ADHD clients because it, it's very rewarding and inspirational work. And I work with people of all walks of life. And, you know, I, I basically really love what I do. And so I kind of thank Peter for that and the input he's had on helping some of the training courses um, that I've devised and run with my colleague Deborah. I mentioned before, we've got a website which is aspireautismcounselling.co.uk, but that also includes, you know, guidance and courses for neurodiversity and conditions such as ADHD. So, you know, if anybody does want some support, please get in touch. And also, I, I think I forgot to mention, if you are looking to get a diagnosis, you, you may talk to your GP, but your GP may not may know quite a bit about where to go. Some do, some don't. But most most areas or regions have an ADHD NHS diagnostic service, as well as private practitioners. Brilliant, thank you. And and Peter, I'm going to finish with you then. I just wondered if you had anything else to say in terms of if anyone was listening to this and was perhaps struggling themselves and not sure whether what to do and thinking maybe they have ADHD or they're not they're not they're not quite sure what would you what would you say to them I'd just say get try and seek help seek support you know there's so many workplaces now that even if you don't have a diagnosis where if you just I think we are luckily becoming a bit more honest and open about mental health so all it takes is a sit down with your boss or your partner or your family and just 
say, look, I'm really struggling with this. I've looked at a few things and this makes sense. You know, with my sexuality, I've had to do that to so many people so many different times. And Mm -hmm. those initial conversations are hard to change people's perception of you and change people's perception of how you view them almost in a way. But it can lead to a lot of explanation and it can heal a lot of rifts as well. Um, And as mum says as well, medication, although it wasn't for me, um, I understand it can help most other people. And in Mm -hmm. fact, although it wasn't for me, medication has changed a lot, even in the last eight years since I've been off it. Um, I was thinking about going back on it this year. It's a, it's, an, it's a hard conversation to have, but I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. All, all I wanted to add just before we finish is sort of a positive thing, really. We haven't really mentioned this, and I know that hopefully, John, you'll be doing some further podcasts with, with women that have ADHD. But one thing I see in both men and women and boys and girls that have ADHD, the really positive things are the enthusiasm, the intuition, you know, often creativity and the energy to to do to hyper focus when you're really absorbed in something and feel passionate about something that's what I love about the people I work with you know once you can channel that energy and begin to have strategies to help with some of the difficulties people can really do some amazing things and and that's I think why I love the the people I work with that have ADHD because they can be quite risk takers and and humorous and also quite visionary so I just wanted to end with some of the really positive attributes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Peter and Ruth, for your input today. You've been fascinating insight into the world of ADHD. And, 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 and Peter, you know, you're such an inspirational young man. And what you've had to say, you've been so honest and open. And please, you know, I hope you continue that fascinating work. And I'm sure that's going to help a, a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast. I'm going to be looking out for you because uh, no doubt you'll be some sort of film director in the future. Obviously, once you graduate from this film and television school so good luck with that thank you so much guys i really appreciate it thank you thank you john